Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 13. Book of John, 13th chapter. Today our theme is servanthood. It's we're in the last week of Jesus' life before his betrayal and murder. And we're going to learn from John that we are in the day of Thursday of that last week. And a lot of the texts over the next several weeks are going to be in the Thursday and Friday of this week where we record, where John spends so much of his gospel writing about what Jesus said that night and what he said going into the cross as John was an eyewitness to each and every one of those moments. Uh, it was Thursday and they had arrived at a room that they rented. None of them lived in Jerusalem. The disciples had been with Jesus for three to three and a half years, depending on how you see the calendar. And during this period of time, they'd seen him do some amazing things, raise the dead, bring the the blind to sight, the the deaf to hear, and the mute to speak. They'd done some amazing things. But there was a moment that Jesus had to impress upon them the greater purpose for his being here was not to perform miracles. It was to demonstrate the love of the Father and how we serve through that love. And they rented this room. Some historians believe that it may very well have been John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. It may have been his father's place that they stayed in as Mark makes reference in his writings to several uh, eyewitness accounts during this final week that would lead us to believe so. But whether it is or not, they would rent this upper room and they went in to have the Passover meal together or a meal that week when they entered the room. John chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 3. It was just before the Passover feast and Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. John sets the background for us. Uh, The disciples gather in this room, and Jesus is fully aware that his time is so short, ridiculously short, in fact, within a matter of 18 hours, he will be brutalized and dead. And so he knew this was an opportunity to seize a moment. They would enter into the room, and there was a lot of tension in the room that night because when you walked into someone's home, uh, inside the door where we would have a a, a placemat, or I'm sorry, a welcome mat for people to kick off their shoes and make themselves comfortable, when you walked in one of these homes in the Middle East during these days because they didn't have cement and blacktop and, and all of these kind of things, there would be a big basin, a pitcher of water, and some towels. And there would be a servant stationed at the door that when you would come into my home, the servant would come and you would kick off your sandals. And because you were traveling through the dirt and through the mountains and outside, that you would just have junk all over your feet. And some of your feet would be scabbed up and sore because you stubbed your toe or had a cut. But your feet would be filthy and dusty. And when they would come in the room, the servant would meet them there and they would place their foot into the to the basin and water would be poured down your calf onto your foot and then they would take a towel and they would wipe off your feet and clean your feet and then the next person would go into the room and this is what took place. However, when the disciples walked in the room that particular night, there was nobody stationed at the door because nobody, the host wasn't there, they had rented the room or borrowed it. So the custom was when it wasn't someone's home that somebody in the dinner party or the gathering would wait at the door normally the person who called the meeting, but they would wait at the door and they would take care of all the filthy feet that walked in from the dusty roads and from the city. This particular night, all the disciples had just walked in the room and gathered around the table and chosen their seat at the table for the meal. I'd like to show you a picture of a depiction of what a dinner table would look like back in the days of Jesus. 
and it doesn't look like me. Okay, there's no picture. Okay, if there were a picture, it would look like a bunch of tables with people with couches and cushions pushed up against them and made available. There you go. And as if you ever, and I know some of the ladies are going, I don't know what that's like. Every man knows what it is to eat on the couch watching a ball game. You're kind of leaned up against one side, you got your plate, you know, laying on your tank, and there you are, you're eating your food. That would be the design of a table in the days of Jesus. Now, the part, however, you need to notice is their feet would be very much near each other. They would be dirty, they would stink, and they would be near your food. Uh, someone once said that to go into a, 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 a place of, a meeting of dinner, to not wash your feet would be the equivalent of showing up at the dinner table without your shirt on. Nobody wants to see that. So to be eating and have someone's feet just over your shoulder is really kind of gross. So there's a tension in the room because everybody walked in the room and grabbed their seat around the table, but nobody made themselves available to take care of their friends. Now, I'm going to suggest a few things that I'm thinking through because I grew up in a family with three brothers. There's four boys. And I know that when it came to doing certain things, that I may not have volunteered myself, but I knew which one of my brothers should. Shake your head if that makes sense. I think every one of the disciples had an idea who should have washed their feet, and the person that shouldn't was themselves. So they all knew somebody should have done it, but none of them volunteered to do it. Does that make sense? Until the most awkward moment of the evening happens in verse 4. So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus, no, I'm sorry. God got up from the table when nobody else would do it. That's probably the gospel in a sentence. It wasn't just Jesus, it was God. There have been moments, and I know that this happened to me when I was a a kid, and I see it with both of my sons, and they're good boys, but there are moments where their mom will ask them to do something, and they will sigh, roll their eyes, or say something like, at the commercial, at which point I say, there'll be no need for a commercial because I'm going to break the TV. Your mom asked you to bring the dishes in so she could start the dishwasher, and you sit there thinking that's an inconvenience. The same girl who would get up in the middle of the night when you were sick and sit up all night with you, rocking you in a chair to break your fever, or would spend all of her birthday money to buy you certain things that she wanted you to have, and she does all these generous things. It's that girl who asked you to do it. Will you do it? To see a sigh, a roll of the eyes, like, I'll do it later. No, you're going to do it now because of who's asking you to. And Jesus looked around the table and he realized none of the men that, he, that had seen him do amazing things had understood who he was. He got up and he took the basin to the table and he put the basin under their feet and he poured water on it. Now this is God's hands. God's hands took their feet and knocked off all the outer dirt and then he took the towel and he would rub between their toes and he would clean off their toenails and the bottom of their rough outdoor heels. And he would rub their calves, and and it was, I imagine there was not a noise made at the table. Would you agree? They weren't talking about sports or how good the lamb was going to taste for the Passover feast. The whole time they were watching God with mud splattered on his shirt from the water pouring off the feet and the towel going into the water and washing and scrubbing. I'm not a fan of feet. Maybe some of you are. I'm not. People say, well, they're pretty feet. No, they're not. They're not pretty feet. 
That's why we wear shoes. They're not pretty. And here was God rubbing filthy, nasty, just tore up feet. And it's one of those moments where the God of the universe is right there doing all of these things. In verse 6, he comes to Peter. Peter had seen this going on. Peter didn't have a problem when Andrew's feet got washed or Bartholomew's feet got washed or Matthew's feet got washed. But when Jesus comes in verse 6, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, we might think that's a dumb question. In fact, you can make fun of it if you look at it and go, what's he done to everybody else, Peter? Focus. But instead, I think the key word in verse 6 is, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Because Peter knew that Andrew should have washed his feet. Peter would have loved it if John washed his feet. Peter was uncomfortable with God washing his feet. Verse 7, Jesus said, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And they would. Not this night, though. But in the book of Acts, absolutely. They would get it. Peter's embarrassed, and he says in verse 8, no, you shall never wash my feet. Peter doesn't get it yet. He knows how powerful Jesus is, but he also thinks he's too powerful too. So he says, no, you will never wash my feet. Rabbis would teach in that day, according to uh, historians of this day and scholars, uh, what I've read is that rabbis would teach that it was beneath a Jew to wash another person's feet. Now, if they were Gentile, they could do that and they should. But a good, noble Jew should never have to be asked to do this. So we understand culturally why they all walked in the room and they all had an idea who should wash their feet, but they knew it wasn't going to be them. And Jesus says to him, verse 8, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Now this is bigger than the feet right now, church. This is Jesus saying, you better let me do what only I can do. Do you guys get that? Shake your head if that makes sense to you. You better let me do what only I can do. And then Peter being Peter, (laughs) extravagant Peter, verse 9, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Give me a bath. (laughs) Jesus is like, Peter, for real. (laughs) Peter, how about you let me do what I came to do and quit telling me what I can and can't do? I think that's the heartbeat of this. You see, they would never have come to the Passover meal without taking a bath. Do you remember how many times in this 70-some weeks that we've been going through the teachings of Jesus that the idea of ceremonial cleaning has come up? These were clean people. And to go to the Passover filthy was a mockery. So the only thing that was filthy was their feet from the journey. That's why Jesus says a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. It's interesting there. Jesus is giving some foreshadowing It's at this moment that we're absolutely sure that Jesus knows who his betrayer is because Judas has already done it. Judas has the 30 pieces of silver. All he has to do now is kiss the king. And so Jesus knows what's going on here and he says, you're clean, but not all of you. And he just went from physical to spiritual. And he continues to wash the feet of Peter and he washes the feet of John and James and he goes right down the line and I just picture Jesus getting up in his clean clothes for the Passover now speckled with the filth of the disciples who were with him that night. And in verse 12, he says, do you understand what I have done for you? And the answer is no. They would, but they don't yet. Because for all the miracles and all the power and all the presence of Jesus in their life, they haven't grasped, and neither have I, the concept of the love that motivated Jesus to do everything. Verse 13 
You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. As Jesus spoke these words, each one of his disciples remembered when they walked in the room that night and thought, not me. I'm not doing that for that guy. Look at his feet. Every one of them made a choice to place themselves above everyone else. And Jesus said, God got on his knees. You saw him do that. Now what will you do for him? It's a very simple teaching. What I'd like to do this morning is walk through the metaphor and then talk about the reality. Let's look at the metaphor. The reason I think it's important for us to know that washing of feet is a metaphor is today that's not necessary. I've been in some uh, foot washing services as a Christian, and I understand the symbolism of it, but when I have to take off my $100 shoes and I have to take off my $15 socks for you to wash my feet, it's symbolism only. Because my feet aren't dirty. Not comparative to that night. So Jesus isn't saying that the actual foot washing was the point. It's meeting the needs of the people in front of him that was the point. And isn't Jesus great at that? Now, your feet may not be filthy, but your hands may be filthy, and Jesus will wash your hands. You define whatever you want the metaphor to mean. The beauty of it is, it's a way of understanding love. And it destroys the image of love in our culture. Because we feel we have to be attracted to someone to love them. Who's attracted to a foot? And if you are, don't tell me. (laughs) The truth is, love is not about being attracted. Love is about seeing a need and meeting it. It's what would get Heather up in the middle of the night to sit with the sick, coughing kid all night long when she too needed sleep and she had to work the next day. It's love that meets the need. It's not the attraction. It's not what you gain from it. It's what you give to it that makes it love. Every one of us right now, if we'll think through it, has somebody who is on our last nerve. I think it's funny. People are like, oh, yeah, yeah. Someone who's hurt you, someone who's been stubborn and ignorant, someone who's hard to deal with, someone who's numb to all of your efforts, someone who's disappointing to you, someone who's mistreated you, and you're on your last nerve, and you're ready to give up on them. That is when love is most needed. Because love defined by our culture would not care about that person and have right not to care about that person. The love of God says that is the most important person in your world. The golden rule says do unto others as you have them do unto you. And the golden rule says you owe whatever you want. Real love gives what you would hope to receive. You have to put yourself in their place and you have to love them as you need love when you're hurt, when you're stupid, when you're hard, when you're numb, when you're difficult. That's what love does. I don't believe there are any greater incidents outside of the cross in the Gospels where love and the character of Jesus are most clearly seen. But I also want to say that we are not called by God to do random acts of kindness. That's such a contemporary term today. Just go do something good for the community. Go do something good for a neighbor. Go do something good. And we're supposed to do that. Every human being should do that. But the love of Christ compels me to do it for the glory of God. Braden and I were coming back from uh, maybe a year, maybe two years ago. We were coming back from a, base, a little league baseball practice. And, and uh, Heather was uh, out working. And so it was my turn to feed B. And I cook with a credit card. So we pulled into Culver's. And as we pulled into Culver's, B and I have our special things we get at every little restaurant when we're together, and I ordered my meal, and I got to the window, and I pulled up, and I had my credit card, and a young lady looked at me and she said, your meal's been taken care of. 
I said, wow, really? She said, yeah, the car ahead of you paid for your meal. I said, well, that was very kind. Do you know who they were? And she said, no. She said, the gentleman just told me to tell you Jesus paid for it. That's how you love. The next day I went to the Lexus dealership and he wasn't there, but I tried. I mean, I was, I was looking for more love because everybody needs love, right? But the truth is, I'll never forget that. Because they could have told me their name or just left it anonymous, but they told, they witnessed to the cashier and to me that the love of Jesus compelled them to do something most people would never think of doing. It's not random acts of kindness. You see, if it's not done for the glory of Jesus, you're just being nice. If it's done for the glory of Jesus, you're making a difference. So we are to love by seeing filthy feet, getting on our hands and knees, and being made muddy. In Philippians 2, Paul says that Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul saw Jesus wash feet every day of his life. And in verse 15, Jesus said, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. So the metaphor is clear. When someone is hurting, when someone is filthy, when someone needs something, whether they've earned it or not, whether they're on your last nerve or not, if you're asking yourself the question, who should I love, you have missed the point of everything Jesus taught us. You should love the person who needs love. And in that, we will have understood what Jesus did that night. Now let's talk about the reality. I read once, and this was back before I was actually citing my sources, so I don't know who the author was, I just remember the quote and I wrote it down. He said, if two angels were asked by God to go do something for him, and one of them was asked to rule the greatest nation that ever existed, and the other one was asked to go into the worst slum in all the world and clear out the debris so children could play there, the second angel would not be offended that he didn't get the first job. The second angel would just celebrate that God allowed him to help. And I think that's what Jesus means by washing feet. For a Christ follower, the important thing isn't what God has us doing. The most important thing is that God wants us to help him. Church, do you get that? Greatness is not defined by what you do. It's by who you partner your life with and be a part of what God wants. But I'm gonna, I want to bring up two, and these are very important to me. I want to bring up two things that have been unnoticed by me and so I assume by many others. Not because I think I'm smarter than everybody else, but I spend a lot of time in this book. I get to by the privilege you give me. And yet there are certain things that I notice years later going, how come I've never seen that before? So I'd like to pose two things to you this morning to think through with me. Uh, Let's look at verse 12. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Who washed Jesus' feet? John never tells us who washed Jesus' feet. John never tells us if Jesus' feet were ever washed. Now, I want to be clear here. There are 13 men around the table that night. 12 men got their feet washed. Who washed Jesus' feet? Now, you may come to me and say, well, I bet you Jesus washed his own feet. Maybe. John doesn't say that. John says that after he finished washing their feet, he he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Now, I'm not going to die over the fact that Jesus' feet weren't washed, but I don't have evidence in the scripture to say they were. I don't know about you, but that bothers me. 
And I believe possibly that Jesus went back to the table with dirty feet, just maybe. Because if you remember in Matthew chapter 25, he said, whatever you did for the least of these, you've done it for me. And whenever you wouldn't do it for the least of these, you've not done it to me. I wonder if his filthy feet at the table that night were not an object lesson that when you choose what's best for you over what's best for everybody, Jesus gets left unattended. Thirteen set of feet, twelve clean, one filthy. So what do we learn from that? What's the example that we learn from that? It's not just what Jesus did, it's who did it. God got on his knees and wiped the filth off of their feet. It reminds me of the passage that that happened previous to this moment in the life of Jesus when Mary broke into a dinner and she took this anointing oil and she anointed Jesus' feet. Do you remember that? Because that host didn't wash Jesus' feet either. And Mary, and this is gross. I mean, we pretty it up on the flannel graph boards. When I was growing up in junior church, it was clinically sterile and clean. That woman took her long hair and she used it to wrap around his toes and squeegee the dirt out of his nails between his toes and the bottom. I just see a bunch of women with long hair going. (laughs) This wasn't pretty. This was sloppy. This was uncomfortable. Uh, One of my friends described it this way. If you're ever going to kiss somebody that you love and you kind of miss and you get one lip and half a nostril and you're like, oh, that was weird. That's what that was. That was that moment where she's using her hair. And she didn't get up from the table and all of a sudden, like Hollywood, she's clean again. She went home gunky. And in this moment, God got on his hands and knees and got filthy. It was God who washed our feet. And he did it because he loved us. He did it because I needed him to. God serves us when it's inconvenient. And then the part that has blown me away all week He knew what was going to happen to him that night. He knew it. He wrote the scriptures that told us what would happen. I don't know about you, but when when I'm focused on something, I I can laugh. The other day, I was driving somewhere, and Braden was in the car, and the radio was on, and Braden was chirping, and we were driving down the road, and I got kind of confused about where I needed to go, quickest way to get someplace, and then I got myself turned around, I tried to remember, how do I get back to here, here, here? I had to turn off the radio and silence Braden. I'm like, it. He's like, I'm sorry. Because I needed all my attention on where I was trying to get. I don't know about you, but if I knew the Romans were about to arrest me and torture me, the last thing I would have thought about was the filthy feet of my friends. Of all the things to be worried about that night, why in the world would I have focused on that? And the truth is, because God is constantly in love with me, and I am constantly in love with myself. That's why I wouldn't think about your feet. I would only think about my life. And that's what Jesus was trying to teach. And then John, in verse 12, tells me he washed all their feet. Judas was an all. And Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. He he knew what Judas had already done. Judas had made a pact for 30 pieces of silver to identify Jesus to the Romans away from the large crowd so there wouldn't be a riot. He betrayed him, he sabotaged him, he lied, he took advantage, he did all of that, and my God got on his knees and washed that man's feet. 
That's not right. But you'll never find a greater picture of the gospel than Jesus' dirty feet and Judas' clean feet. Because that's not right. Is it, church? Who should have the filthy feet? The liar, the cheat, the loser. Who had the dirty feet? The king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the greatest servant ever. You want a picture of the gospel? My feet are clean and his are filthy. You see, the reality of washing feet is if you're waiting for it to be right, you'll never do it. What's right is a God who cares enough about us to wash our filthy feet and take all of that dirt upon himself. And there's the gospel. In verse 7, he says, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you will. Verse 12, he says, do you understand what I've done for you? And every feet were clean. In just a few moments, Jesus would reach in a bowl and take a piece of unleavened bread, and he would grab this fruit, this herb dip, and he would hand it to Judas, and he would give Judas, and he would say, go and do what you're going to do with clean feet. It's the gospel. Verses 16 and 17 of John 13. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do this. Now that you know what it is to love. Now that you know what it is to serve. Now that you know what it is to express the picture of the gospel. Paul said in Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now that you know, now when you walk into a room of people, instead of identifying who should be taking care of you, we now live differently because of the gospel, and we go to take care of others. So all the awkwardness is done. We serve because we've been served. We love because we've loved. We wash other people's feet. We care for other people's needs. And when they ask us, why in the world would you do that? If I would ask Jesus right now, how could you wash Judas's feet? He would say these words, because I love him. Even in his betrayal, the love of Jesus Christ was undeniable for Judas. What a God we serve. That he could love the one who had already set his heart on betrayal. John 13, 34, Jesus would say, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. It's not a new commandment, meaning that it didn't exist before. I'm told the Greek word for new there means the new experience. He's saying, hey, guys, try this. Go love, just like I loved you. You see, I believe love is giving when you feel like keeping. How about you? I believe that it's praying for others when you need prayed for. It's feeding others when your soul is hungry itself. It's living the truth before people even when you can't see a speck of fruit. It's hurting with other people even when your own hurt can't be spoken. It's being fully there when your flesh wants to run away. It's taking off your dinnerware, getting down on your hands and knees, and scrubbing filth off of ugly things. That's what Jesus told us. That's the example I gave you. You'd be wise if you went and did this. This morning I'd like you to stand if you would please.
I'd like us to pray together, but I want to encourage us to pray uniquely. A lot of times, I don't know about you, I'm, I'm undeniably a spaz. So if I'm in a big prayer session and someone else is praying, my mind is all over the map. I'm thinking about where I'm going next, how much longer will they go, I don't focus well. So what I've had to force myself to do, and it's been beneficial, is when someone else prays, I participate in their prayer by agreeing, sometimes audibly and sometimes just internally. They'll pray something I've never thought of, and I go, oh yeah, that's right. Sometimes they'll pray something I've always thought of, and I'm like, yes, Lord, please. So I'm going to ask you this morning while I pray for us, that to talk about loving without going to God to ask for the ability to get on our knees like Jesus did is worthless. So as I pray this morning, you don't have to respond audibly, although you're welcome to. Some of you may want to kneel or put your arm around someone you love and pray together with me on this. And when we're done during our time of worship around this room or tables with lamps, I I believe God's going to move some of us to make some changes. And if you want encouragement and prayer, you want answers questioned, you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, we go to those tables so you have someone you can safely talk to in privacy about what God's doing in your life because we're here for one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will bend our wills and break down our pride. That you will make us servants in our heart's desires and in our actions. And in these next few moments, Lord, as we pray, hear us as we confess to you that we have neglected love, that we are reluctant to serve some who bother us, and that there are people around us every day who need this. Jesus, I know you love us. Even Judas knew you loved him, but that your love didn't change him. And I pray that it will change us. We pray today that you will soften our hearts, our ears, our eyes, and our minds to understand and celebrate the love you showed when you gave up everything to win such an unloving, hard-hearted people. You went to a place of punishment, isolation, and torture for us while we laughed at you, denied your truth, questioned your motives and yet you gave us a place with you Jesus I pray that your spirit would move right now and break free break hearts free into your love those that are too scared to admit what they've done or too hurt to trust or too angry to surrender I pray that each one of us will let you meet our needs may we not cry out what Peter cried Lord you'll never wash my feet but instead may we have the zeal to say Lord I wash any part of me that you find unclean. Lord, I pray next that you would move in our hearts to change us, even now, right now. That you would bring to mind the specific ways that we might love and serve our brothers and sisters, even the very people in this room. Bring those names and faces to our minds, Lord, and help us to hear you clearly as you suggest ways for us to obey your word, to bring you glory, to highlight your truth. And finally, Lord, please produce in us a new awareness, a new and spirit-filled ability to serve those outside of these walls. Help us, Lord, to spread the life-changing gift of your love and grace by the way we humbly, the way we humble ourselves and wash the feet before us. May these actions not be random so that we feel good, but may they be touches of your love where you are seen. Hear us, Lord as we pray for an ability that is not ours to serve you by loving as you loved us. And now, Lord, as we continue in worship, open the eyes of our hearts and pour into us and draw out of us all that you've ever wanted. 
And it's by our belief and trust in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.